in verse 1 of chapter 23, it says, Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares... The man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a description of David here. Now, I want to say that these are actually probably not David's last words overall. I think he probably spoke some words after those. It's a phrase to really let us know that, that this is the last words of uh, poetry that David was going to speak. Uh, because verses 2 through 7 are really a psalm. Uh, they're not included in the book of Psalms, but that's exactly what it is. It's uh, verses of stanzas of poetry rather than just prose here. So that's what we're talking about here. But in any way, um, you know, the last words that someone speaks, and think about someone who maybe wrote their last book and they knew it was going to be their last book. Wouldn't they want that to be the most effective book that they wrote? The, the words of wisdom that they would like to impart or... Uh, the passing of the torch to a next generation, those kinds of things. And that's kind of what we have here in these verses that we're going to be reading tonight. Now, it says, David, by human birth, was just the son of an Israelite. David, the son of Jesse, and Shane really hit on this. You know, David was just a shepherd boy. He was uh, one of many sons that Jesse had, the least of the sons, in fact. Uh, and, and so there was nothing special about him growing up, except for one thing I think we can say was special about David. We know from the very time we meet David that he loved God, and he had a relationship with God. And, you know, we think of Old Testament saints, that wasn't true with all of them. They knew about God, but they didn't know God. David knew God. And then it says that by God's will, his plan... David was three things. He was raised up. The word actually is exalted. Now, we don't like to think of humans as being exalted, but that's exactly what happened. David was raised up. He was exalted. And then it says that he was anointed. What was he anointed to? Well, he was anointed to two things. One, he was anointed to become king over Israel. But two, he was anointed to be the sweet songwriter of Israel. What, a, what an amazing thing when you think about it. Not too many people are warrior kings who also write music. You know, I, I remember uh, when I first started playing at some different churches, and, you know, they would introduce me and say, this is a football coach from such and such high school. And, and people would come up afterwards and go, a football coach that sings? That's weird. And I go, well, that's true. It is weird, and I'm weird, but so it works. But all of this was according to God's plan. You know, David was not exalting himself in any way here. In fact, just the opposite. He, he is, you know, declaring his humble origins. And he's demonstrating the ability of God to do whatever God wants to do with any person. If God wants to raise you up to be a king, God can do that. Now, if we move on in, in verse 2 here, um, it says... In verse 2 and 3, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And here's where he begins his psalm. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, notice there's a couple of things we see here that he was spoken to, and words were spoken by him from God. And it's really important here to notice and to be, take, uh, pay good attention to the fact of who it was that spoke to David. Let's see what it says. It says, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the two 
Hebrew words there, ruach, uh, and Lord is Yahweh here. So really, literally, we're saying that the breath or wind of Yahweh. That's how the Spirit was referred to in Old Testament times. So it's the breath or wind of Yahweh that spoke to David. But then notice, too, it says the God of Israel. Well, guess what? This word God here is not Yahweh. It's that other word that I keep bringing up here. It's that word Elohim. And Elohim is a plural name for God. There's a reason that Yahweh is used and Elohim is used because God wants us to know who is speaking here. It's a plural God, not a singular God. It is a plural God, a three-in-one God. And the reason we know it's three-in-one because who speaks next? The rock of Israel. And that rock of Israel is Jesus. Now, there will be those who are non-Trinitarians who would love to try and take these verses here and say, no, 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 that's not speaking of the Trinity. But, you know, I would ask you this. If you didn't read anything more or didn't listen to me anymore, wouldn't you think something's up here with it being spoken of three different ways and Yahweh, Elohim, and the rock all being spoken of? Well, we know the rock of Israel is Jesus. If, if you would, turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. And I'll give you a second there. 1 Peter 2, one of the great passages of the New Testament to explain to us what the church is, but it explains to us what Jesus is and who Jesus is as well. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, it says this, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, speaking of the church, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a what of offense? A rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So we, we hear this over and over in Scripture, Jesus being referred to as the chief cornerstone, as the rock. And, and when we say we come to Christ by our statement of faith, that's the bedrock which our faith is built on. Jesus is the rock. You see, David wanted to make it very clear here, the writer wanted to make it very clear here, that David had heard from and spoken through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian God. And David also wants to make it clear that when he is speaking, he's not speaking on his own. He's speaking by what God has given him to speak. And if that's the case, then it behooves us, uh, the people that were listening to it then and us now, to listen. Because we know this is God speaking. So he says this, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, and then verse 4, is as the light of the morning, when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine and after rain. 
Now, my first thought as I was reading this, I have to say, my first thought was an early morning tea time. And I don't know, maybe I was, I was kind of remembering a day at Dos Lagos. Um, after the sun, the sun had come out after a rain. It was a beautiful morning. And Pastor Michael's laughing because he was probably with me, and he's going to tell you this isn't a true story. But it really is. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful sight after it rains, and the sun comes out, and you're there early in the morning. And it's just beautiful. And you have this feeling of anticipation that it's going to be a great day. And, of course, if you hit that first drive, and it goes straight, and your position, especially on the first hole at Dos Lagos with no warm-ups, you hit that first drive, and you go, okay, maybe I can actually get this on the green in two. And then, of course, if you hit that second one, which I have once or twice out of 500, um, you know, you get that second one, you get it on the green, and you're going, man, this is going to be a beautiful day. This is going to be an awesome day. You have that feeling, and it started out just by the light of the morning. Of course, I will tell you that when that happens to me, I always miss the birdie putt. And then I go, well, maybe it's not going to be such a great day. But that's not true, it is. So God is speaking through David, and what he's saying here is that, you know, when you're under a righteous rule, this is what it should be like. And this is really what God had intended when he puts rulers into place. He expects them to rule righteously and to make life good for people, not bad for people. But notice the requirement for one to be a righteous ruler. What's the requirement? The requirement is the fear of God. That word uh, fear is yurah in the Hebrew, and interestingly enough, it's a feminine noun, meaning fear, but the word usually, according to the word study dictionary, the word usually refers to the fear of God and is viewed as a positive quality, not negative. This fear acknowledges God's good intentions, and that's why we say that the implication there is it's a reverence or a standing in awe of rather than just a negative fear. But I think a little negative fear is in there as well. I really do. I think it's best described in Matthew 10, 28. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew 10, 28 says, in a comparison, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there's a comparison there. Of fear, And we're not to fear one group, but we're to fear God, have that reverent awe of him. And, you know, it makes sense, really, when you think about it, because the Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we say that all the time, but, you know, that's not the only reason to fear God. There are dozens of reasons contained in the Scripture of why we should fear God in this way. And I'm going to give you a few of them. Uh, you don't have to turn to them, but you might want to write them down so you can look them up later. I, I, I think if you just wanted to do a devotion uh, one morning, just read these few verses I'm going to give you. They're awesome. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not just wisdom, but knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then Psalm 25, 14, Psalm 25, 14, it says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. See, there's knowledge contained in here besides wisdom. He will make them know 
his covenant. Then Psalm 33, 18. Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. His eye is on you when you fear him all the time. Then Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. You see, those who fear the Lord, they have angels that encamp around them. This is scripture, guys. This isn't some story somebody made up. It's true. Now, some of you know it's true because you know that angels have surrounded you and have prevented you from things happening that you know could have happened. I was leaving here one night. It was dark. It was just about five o'clock and it was already dark. And I'm telling you what, I was waiting for cars to go by and then I saw an opening and I started to go and, and I just felt like I heard the word no and I felt my foot hitting the brake. I didn't think about it. And I'm telling you what happened was there was a car hidden behind some of the parked cars. You guys know what it's like turning left out of here. And I'm telling you what it smashed me to smithereens. And I really feel that was God's angels just encamped around me. And I know they do that a lot. Psalm 103.17. 103.17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. The loving kindness of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting, and his righteousness to his children's children. Then Psalm 145, 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Isn't that some unbelievably awesome promises God gives to those who fear him? That's where it all begins. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our governmental leaders feared the Lord in this way, wouldn't that just be awesome? How much better off would our country be if all of our leaders feared God? Listen to this proverb, Proverbs 8:13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I mean, how would it be if our leaders really did hate evil and pride and arrogance and didn't have perverted mouths that say one thing and then do another? And I think we need to keep praying for our leaders that they would have that fear of God and that we would see those results. But let's, let's not forget, this applies to us too because we all lead in one way or another, don't we? Now, sometimes you don't feel like you're leading in anything, and especially people who are introverted. But look, if nothing else, at least when you become a mom and a dad, you're a leader. You're a leader of your home. And, and we, wouldn't you like it if your kids thought of you in that description I gave earlier? They thought of you like being on the golf course on a beautiful morning. And they thought, that's what it's like in my house because I'm ruled by one who fears God. So the counsel for us is, to live our lives with a constant mind towards the awesomeness of God, the reverent fear of who he is and who we are, and the fact that he could have, and he had every right to actually be the one to kill our soul, but instead he suffered and died to save our soul. 
Well, next, David's going to speak about really some of the legacy of, of his rule in the kingdom. And so in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 23, he says, Truly is not my house so with God, speaking of this kind of rule. For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things, and secured. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? Now, I want you to realize that David, when he says his house, he's not speaking of his home. Because we all know what his home was like, and it wasn't the greatest, was it? (laughs) Unfortunately, it wasn't. But what he is speaking of is his rule over Israel, the house of Israel. And David makes a case here that his rule has been a righteous rule. And why has it been? Because David fears God. And we know that David does fear God. And David also believes that God will keep the covenant he made with him. Now, what covenant is that? So in order to understand that, we need to turn back a little bit. Um, You don't have to go to this one, but Genesis 49.10, this is where it really begins. Because in Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah. And that's the tribe, of course, that David comes from. And that's the tribe that Jesus came from. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of his people. So there was the beginning of it, the fact that the scepter was not going to depart from the house of Judah. But now, if you would, turn back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Because here is where we're going to read about the covenant that was made with David. This is the Davidic covenant. And starting in verse 12. And remember, this is Nathan the prophet who is speaking here to Daniel. And he says this, when your days are complete, David, and you lay down with your fathers, that's dying, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So when we read that at first glance, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's right, because David's son Solomon took over for David. And remember, David couldn't build a house for God because his hands were bloody. So Solomon was the one that was going to build the house for God. That's why it's called Solomon's temple. But remember that Solomon's home for God is only temporary. It doesn't last. And these verses tell us that your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. You see, this is a messianic prophecy. It's speaking of the rule of Jesus Christ, and that rule is going to be everlasting. You see, Jesus is the one who's going to build the everlasting house, and he's doing that now as he is building his church here. And that house is built with what? We just read in 2 Peter. It's built with living stones. That's you. That's me with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And that kingdom rule 
will actually literally begin at the millennium, and it will continue and last forever and ever. But there's an important part that we sometimes leave out to this, and that's in verses 6 and 7. This is the end of this, this poetry that David is writing here. David says this, But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns, because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. Now, that might be a little, a little hard to understand at first here. So let's look at what the NIV says, how it translates it. I think it's a little bit easier to understand. It says this, verse 6, But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hands. You don't gather thorns with your hands, do you? I hope you at least put some gloves on. But what it says, whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. When you go to pick up thorns, when I trim my bougainvillea, I don't just go and pick that up. I take the shovel or a rake or something and, and do it. Whenever I don't do that, I look like I got in a fight with the, the world's largest cat. Okay? And that's what it's telling us. Nobody's going to touch this. But he says this, that they are burned up where they lie. So if you're not going to pick them up and throw away, they're going to be burned up right where they lie. So along with this everlasting righteous rule that's being spoken of here will also come the final judgment of those who refuse to submit to the rule of Christ in their lives. When it says, but evil men, that's what it's talking about. Evil men are those who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. And anyone who has done that will be like these thorns. They will be burned up where they lie. They will be cast aside. Now this flies in the face of a lot of the teaching in the church today, doesn't it? There's a lot of teaching in the church today that's really leaning towards universalism that as long as you're sincere in what you believe, you're going to be okay with God. Well, I wish they would read these verses because that's not the case. And though they think that they're helping people by giving them comfort, they're like the false prophets in the Old Testament who gave comfort where no comfort should have been given. And they're leading people straight to the pit of hell. We need to understand that along with the loving kindness for those who fear God, there is judgment for those who don't. Now, as we move on here, we're going to see that a big part of David's legacy here, the legacy of the king, is a loyal group of men who served him. And they served him mightily, and they served him Faithfully, you know, there's never been a great leader who didn't have help. And David was certainly no exception. A great leader has to have some great followers. And um, praise God for you. We're not going to cover all the men here because you're probably looking down this list going, oh, my goodness, is he going to talk about every one of those guys? That's a long list. Well, we're not going to do that. But we are going to point out some characteristics about the ones who we're given a little bit more detail, and I think there's just so much for us to learn by looking at these men. So we're going to look at some of David's mighty men here, starting in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. The first one is Josheb, Bashhebeth, a Tachamonite, chief of the captains. He was called Andino the uh, Esnite which um, I heard one guy teaching on this thing. Sounds like an Italian guy to me, so 
Um, interesting that name, by the way, Andino the Anzite means slim and sharp spear. Slim and sharp spear. Because of 800 slain by him at one time. So this, this man that's being spoken of here, um, it says that he slew 800 men at one time. Now, First Chronicles, which gives us uh, another description of the same event, says that it with 300 men. Now, I'm sure that for, for most of you, that's going to shake your faith to the core. Oh, my gosh, there's a mistake in the Bible. And, and if not, then some guy who maybe read this one verse, trying to look for things that are wrong in the Bible, you know, they have their list of things to go to, might say that to you. It, it's most likely a scribal error because in, even in Hebrew, the numbers 800 and 300 look alike. And they certainly look like that in, you know, our writing, Correct. 800, 300, you just maybe can't tell, is there a little line there or not? It's most likely a scribal error. It is possible that it was speaking of two different incidents, but very, very unlikely. It's probably a scribal error. I don't know if it's 300 or 800, but either way, if he did this all by himself, isn't that pretty supernatural to be able to take on 300 guys and win? Now, it's possible that this means he led a group of men because he was a, a chief, uh, of the of the captains, it's it's possible, but the language, it's interesting because the language doesn't indicate that. Usually, when that's the case, it would tell us that, and the language really implies that it was him by himself. So, what do we note about this particular man? And I think what it is that we we look at the fact that he had the the courage to fight against the odds, against great odds, just like King David. You know, when King David came up against Goliath, um, the betting in Vegas was, you know, pretty high against him. You know, he was probably about 500 to 1, and a lot of people thought they were going to make a, a bunch of money on it. No, that's not true. But it would be true if it happened today, wouldn't it? Everybody would be betting on this fight. Well, the same thing here. I mean, you go up against 300 guys who, you know, unless you have a tank and all they have is rocks, you know, you're going you're gonna to be facing wide odds. I don't think that was the case here. So he had the kind of courage that would say, I'm going to stand up against the odds of victory in this battle. And I had to ask myself a question. When, when was the last time you or I had that kind of courage? You know, it seems like when we face a battle where the odds are really stacked against us, we tend to back away. And to withdraw. And I'm saying that from personal experience. Maybe you've never done that. But I'm going to imagine that at times you have as well. You, you come against a, a battle and you look at the odds and you go, I, I, can't, I can't win this battle. And, and you begin to withdraw. And the encouragement here is, look, a mighty man of David was facing tremendous odds, but he was going to take it on anyway. Um, there was a point in time, and I can't say it was because I was a Christian. It was fact, I really wasn't walking with the Lord. That, went, But when I had such a bad temper and got so angry that I once went in a, a bus after 40 other players on the other team after a football game, and they were making fun of us. And I really thought, 40 to 1, I thought the odds were in my favor. I, 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 can, I can do this. But then, of course, uh, you know, as you grow and you fight real battles spiritual battles, and the odds are against you, it can make you withdraw. And I think that tonight we're, we're seeing that God is saying to us, hey, you're going to have battles, spiritual battles, and the odds are going to be against you. 
have courage. Stand up. Verses 9 and 10, we're told about Eleazar, one of the many Eleazars in the Bible. But after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. What? Eleazar had to have grown up tough because, you know, everybody had to make fun of his dad's name growing up, right? Hey, son of Dodo. Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. It's not actually how it's pronounced, but you wouldn't like the way it really is. One of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. So again, we could go into detail on this, but I think the key fact here is we look at this man and he fought so long and so hard in the battle that he couldn't get his hand off the sword. It was stuck to the sword. Now you might be wondering, eh, I don't know about that, but I'm going to tell you, I've had personal experience with this. When I was younger, I had a kidney stone. If you've ever had a kidney stone, you will understand this story. The pain is unbelievable. The the doctor, when I got there, told me there's only two things that you can compare to a kidney stone in pain. He goes, one is getting shot, and two is having a baby. And I go, well, okay. So, ladies, I, I empathize with you. That thing hurt so bad, and I wanted to get to the hospital, and I wanted to get there fast. And I didn't think anybody else was going to drive as fast as I was, so I jump in the car, and I drive to the hospital and the hospital was about 30 minutes away, so I drove as fast as I could. But it took me about 25, 30 minutes to get there. When I got there, I literally could not peel my hands off the steering wheel. They had cramped up, and they were stuck. And I had to have somebody peel my fingers off the steering wheel. So I can relate to Eleazar here. And, and the, the characteristic, I think, that we see here is Eleazar's perseverance. You know, despite the length of the battle, how long it went on, and despite his own weariness, he just kept on. He just kept fighting to the point where he couldn't even part his hand from his sword. So let me ask you this question. Are, are you in a place tonight of weariness in fighting a, a battle, a spiritual battle? You know, I often found myself in that place when I was teaching in the public school system. It seemed like, and especially my last 15 years or so, it seemed like every day something new was coming down the pike that was going to challenge my ability to stand up for God in that school system. It started way back in the 80s uh, with the New Age movement. And, uh, you know, when Frank Sontag was here, I was talking to him a little about that, when that movement was really in its real heyday. And and then it just kept going on, and, and now today with all the sexual gender issues and that, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And you're, you're told you can't talk about the Bible, and you're told you can't talk about God. And, you know, just every day, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I was in that system for 37 years, and there were times when I got weary. I got weary of that battle. I didn't always want to persevere. I didn't always want to stay in the fray. Well, maybe your battle is just, you know, praying for a loved one's salvation that you've been battling in prayer for years and years and nothing's happened yet. 
Or maybe it's a, a besetting sin that you have in your life that you've dealt with over and over and over, and you're just, I'm tired of fighting this battle, and, and you may want to give in. Maybe it's in just the battle you have with a family member or maybe especially your children, and you're, you're fighting this battle, and you're trying to train them up in the ways of the Lord, and it's not going well. And at times you just want to give up. Whatever the case may be, your encouragement here tonight is persevere. Stay in the battle. Don't give up. Stay in it. 2 Samuel 23, 11 and 12, we learn about another man. His name is Shema. After him was Shema, the son of Agay, and that's really how you say it, a Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered. You notice there's this common theme, Philistines, Philistines. Sometime get your history book out and find the connection between Philistine and Palestinian. It's pretty interesting. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he, Shema, took his stand in the midst of the plot defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Once again, we see that the Lord is getting credit, and I love this in here because it's always the Lord getting credit for the victory, and that's the way it should be. Now, Shema either, again, fought single-handedly or maybe he had a group of men with him, but that's not the key here. The key here is as he took a stand. Sometimes, you know, that's all God asks us to do is take a stand. Sometimes we just take a stand and he grants victory. We may not have to fight a long battle. It may just be that we take the stand. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take a stand? Are we willing to take a stand for righteousness? Now, it's interesting here. Shema was just defending a field of lentils. You're going, why is he even doing that? Well, I'm, I'm assuming it's because they needed the food. Lentils were food. How many of you guys have had lentil soup? Okay. Yeah, we still have that today. So they needed the food, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that's why he, he wasn't going to give it up. He was going to defend it. It doesn't seem like much, but it probably meant food for his people. And I was thinking about this in a spiritual sense. You know, are we, are we willing to take a stand for our spiritual food, which is the bread of life? You know, Jesus said his food was to do the will of the Father, and he also said that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I started thinking, will I take a stand in the middle of the field and defend the word of God? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be mighty men and women of God and take a stand? You know, I, I was thinking about this one, and it, it, it reminded me of one time when I, I took a stand, and I didn't really want to. I mentioned back in the 80s, the New Age movement was really in its heyday. And I was teaching, and I won't mention the high school, but I was teaching at a certain high school. And we had this big in-service day. They have these all the time. I hate them. And, and you know, they, we're going to do a new mission statement for the high school, right? And so what they do is like some, some, one of the administrators went to some management meeting and said, this is the way you do it now. So you get up there, and they take this big old chart with a big old piece of paper and a big old marker pen, right? 
And they put, are you, some of you guys relating to this? So, so they put these things up here and they say, now we want you to choose, and they put us all in little groups, we want each group to choose three of these things on the board to be included in our mission statement. Okay? So each group was supposed to do that, uh, choose three things that they wanted to be in the mission statement. Well, among those things were a couple of statements that were real new agey in their language. And, and, and I knew that because being a Christian and being uh, teaching the word of God, you know, you recognize these kind of statements and they were very new agey and they had to do with globalism and, and all of the, and one world government stuff. And, and, but it was subtle and a lot of people wouldn't recognize it. So here I am, I'm in my group and you got to remember in public education, um, the vast majority of teachers are very liberal. So now I'm sitting here and I'm going, oh, Lord, here we go again. I've been in the principal's office enough this year, you know, like when we baptized the girl in the pool and things like that. And I'm like, do I have to say something, Lord? I, I, I really I don't want to get into this. I, it doesn't matter what I say. This is how I was thinking, me of great faith. It doesn't matter what I say. They'll just put on there whatever they want anyway. That's... That's how I was trying to get out of it. Well, as the Lord often does, he just prodded me. He said, you got to take a stand. you got to take a stand. So I very meekly in the group said, well, you know, um, I know some of you guys, this might sound a little weird to you, but, you know, these two down here that you guys want to vote for, these really come, they really come out of what's called the New Age playbook. And, you know, we're not supposed to put, this is how I got to it, we're not supposed to put religious things up there, are we? But this is out of a religion. And to my amazement, the uh, eight or so people in my group, when I explained it, went, well, yeah, we don't really want that in there. Are you kidding me? What? I'm expecting the exact opposite reaction. Oh, cool. All right. So we vote, and we vote three other things that, you know, didn't have anything to do with that. And I'm going, well, that was pretty cool. I didn't really do anything. I didn't have to battle. I didn't have to argue. I just said it. So the next part of the, you know, Management 101 course is, now one person from each group must go up and explain why they chose the ones they chose and why they didn't choose the other ones. Yeah. Now I've got to go up in front of over 100 teachers and try to explain this same thing. And I'm like, oh, well, here we go. Well, long story short, and, and, and honestly, I did it very meekly, and, and I didn't want to offend anybody, but I wanted to explain to them why our group voted the way they did. And do you know what? They took those out of there. They didn't put any of them up there. I didn't do anything. I just took a stand. And God worked. And I was amazed. Now, I love to say that this was a tremendous victory the way these are in David, but guess what? After the entire faculty voted in and they gave us the results, then they came back about two hours later and said, and sent out a notice, oh, we made a mistake in the vote count, and guess what? Those two were back in there. Yeah. But you know what? At that point in time, I still felt this was a great victory. Because the teachers really knew, and they understood something that maybe they never understood before. So sometimes just take a stand 
and you won't have to fight. God will just do all the fighting for you. And he does it through his supernatural power. You know, the Bible says that we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That, that word for power there is dunamis. That's dynamite. That's his power. That's what we rely on. Well, now we're told another story of loyalty to David, and I, I love this story, starting in verse 13 here. How am I doing time-wise? Okay. Verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Verse 16, so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought to David, brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. I'm not sure how the other guys felt about that after risking their life. Verse 17, and he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, again, they went out of their way and at great risk. And I think the, the obvious application is here for us. Look, they did this for one reason, to please their king. Just to please David. He just made the statement. He wasn't demanding or asking anybody to do anything. And they heard him and they went, oh, the king wants water from that. Well, let's go get it. Are we willing to risk our lives to please the king? Our king? Jesus? You know, I'm thankful that we live in a place where that hasn't happened yet, where we necessarily have to risk our life to please the king. But we have brothers and sisters all over the world who do. They're in that place, and I'm not sure it isn't coming this way. Certainly, you may have to risk your career to please the king. Do you understand that? Certainly, you may. I know I did more than once to please the king. Now, it's interesting to note as we look at these guys, because we can look at them and go, wow, man, these guys were, wow. These were studs of the kingdom. These guys were mighty men, but... I want you to notice that most of these men were really down and outers before they came to David. Turn with me, if you will, to, back to 1 Samuel, and it's chapter 22, verse 2. You need to read this with me. It's important. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. And this is speaking of these men that came to David. It says, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. And I was reading this and I was going, is this not a perfect picture of us when we came to our king, Jesus? You see, whether we really understood it or not, when we came to Jesus, we were in distress. Why? Because of our sin and the inability to do anything about our sin. We were in distress. And we were in debt. We didn't know that yet either, but we were in debt to a Savior, a Savior who had paid the price already 
for our sin. So when we came to Jesus, we came in distress and we came in debt. And thirdly, when we came to Jesus, we were discontented. You know, as the Spirit draws us to himself, we, we get that sense like Solomon did. Remember Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he summed it up by saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And what he was saying was, everything in life without God is worthless, it's vanity. Every undertaking you might do, no matter how good it appears on the outside, it really is just vanity without God. And you know, again, we, we probably didn't understand that we were discontent. But we were discontent because, and you've heard people say this all the time, I just heard it uh, earlier on the radio today, a, a guy calling into Frank Sontag's show and saying, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I was the class president, I was the president of several clubs, I drove a, dro drove a, a Firebird 400, I had all the girlfriends I wanted, I had it made, and he goes, I was absolutely empty. And I'd grown up in the church, but I didn't know Christ. And I was absolutely, you see, he was saying, I was discontented. I was discontented because we all are going to be discontent because we were created to have fellowship with God. And when we can't have fellowship with God because we don't know him, we're going to be discontented people. But then we gathered. Now, we didn't all gather together like these men did. Most of us gathered individually. Maybe some of you uh, came together as a couple to the Lord or even a family, but most of us went individually. But we gathered to him, Jesus Christ, our captain, our king. And, and I think if we could look at those guys and say, those down and outers, when they came to David, became so loyal that they were willing to risk their life and take these kinds of stands. How much more loyalty should we show to our king, who is the king of all kings? Now, as I said, we're not, we're not going to take the time to cover all the rest of these guys here. Um, but there will be a quiz. You must memorize the names. And if you want any food at TOK, you have to give the list of names. Okay, just so. All right, verse... <laughs> Verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the 30. Now, sometimes it says 30, sometimes 37. Again, don't get worked up. 30 is an approximate number. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as thee. Um, he was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was supposed to go to, uh, down to 29. You were like, uh-oh. I'm in trouble here. Let's go down to uh, verse 29, not 19. A guy you might recognize, Uriah the Hittite. So in this, this list here, 30, 37, in this list, Uriah the Hittite is named as one of the mighty men of God. And why did I bring him and not the rest of the guys? Well, because you're so familiar with him. And I think it has, you know, something important to say to us here. You remember Uriah. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba, and he was trying to cover it up when he found out Bathsheba was pregnant. So what does he do? He brings Uriah home from the battlefield, and he says, Hey, dude, go stay at home with your wife. Why? He was hoping that Uriah would sleep with his wife, and that would cover up his sin. It would be Uriah's son, not David's son. Pretty simple plan. Problem was, Uriah wouldn't do that. Uriah decided... 
no, I'm going to sleep outside because my men and the Ark of the Covenant are all sleeping outside tonight on the battlefield. Therefore, I will not take this pleasure of being in with my wife. Oops. So what does David do? He tries again. Give it the old college try, right? This time he tries by getting Uriah drunk, but it still doesn't happen. So David's plan goes awry. And the reason I bring Uriah up here is because I want you to see the, the characteristic of his life that speaks to us tonight, and that is Uriah's integrity. Uriah's integrity. You know, he just wasn't going to dishonor his men by going and partaking of something that they couldn't do. That's how much he thought of his men. And he had great integrity. And he actually paid for that integrity because David <clears throat> figured he had no other choice but to take Uriah out, so he put him up in the front of the battle line so he would get killed. So Uriah paid a great price for his integrity, but he kept his integrity. And, and, and what I see in this is that, look, you know, integrity can confound the works of evil. Satan hates integrity. Did you know that? He absolutely hates it. So, you know, when he, he starts whispering in, in your ear or my ear, things like, hey, it's, it's okay to take that thing that doesn't belong to you. No one's, no one's ever going to know. Or, or when you hear, hey, go ahead and have that affair. Nobody's going to find out about it. It's going to be okay. Or, hey, look, you can lie on that 1040 form. Everybody does it. And besides, the government gets enough of your money anyway, right? Well, when he starts saying those things... and and you decide, no, I'm, I'm going to be a person of integrity because God wants me to be that. And, and even when I feel like I'm, I'm going to fall in that area, I know God will give me the power by the Holy Spirit to not do that. So we become a person of integrity, and what happens? It foils the plans of the enemy. It confounds evil. It takes a stand against evil. And we have a victory over sin. So as we look at David's legacy, the legacy of this king, we have to say a couple things. Look, it wasn't perfect, right? David made mistakes. But we can say and agree with David that his rule was one of a man who feared God and was a righteous rule, and that's why he's spoken of so highly in the Scriptures, even with all his mistakes. And I think that if we see how his subjects responded to David's leadership, this righteous rule, I think it should motivate us to be mighty men and women of God. We can just take a look at their example. That's why they're included in Scripture for us. So, so what do we see in here? Well, I think we need to be people who have the courage to stand against odds. Even when the odds are great, I, I, I remember thinking when Pastor Michael and some of the other guys went to the city council meeting um, just about having in, it's, uh, in God we trust, right, Pastor Michael, up there? You know, I, I, th I thought the odds are against him. <laughs> the odds are against him, but yet they took a stand, and there it is. Uh, we need to be people who persevere in the faith. We need to not be people who, when the times get hard, just say, I can't do this Christian thing anymore. You know, there are people that have done that. I'm not saying you have to be perfect people and, and, you know, you're so strong, you just persevere through anything. Sometimes you're going to break down. And that's why you need other people in the body to lift you up. 
That's why God put us all together here. But persevere in the faith. Just cling on. I, I was saying to someone recently, you know, it's not all about being perfect in how you do all these things. It's about clinging on to Jesus and not giving up and just persevering. I think we need to be men and women who stand for righteousness in the word of God. You know, I know there's a, a little bit of a movement today that says, hey, the only thing we should be doing is sharing the gospel. And don't do anything that's going to keep you from sharing the gospel with someone. Don't burn any bridges or those. And I, I get that because that is our main responsibility. But, you know, sometimes part of sharing the gospel is people seeing that you're willing to take a stand. You know, we're to take a stand against evil and unrighteousness. Love demands that we speak the truth against unrighteousness. It may cost us. And I think we need to be people who live to please our king. We need to live to please our king, not ourselves. And I think we need to be people of integrity who do what they know is right to do. And again, with all these things, it's all just according to God's word and his will and by his supernatural power that he gives to you to accomplish anything he asks you to do. I think those are the kind of people that we need to be as Christians today. I think we look at the Old Testament and we say, here are some great examples for us. Now, it's interesting because we, we need to understand this. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit the way we do. And yet these guys took these stands. Yes, the Lord came upon them at different times, but these were men who obviously feared God and were loyal to their king. And that's what we need to be, people who fear God and are loyal to our king. And we do that by the power of the Spirit. And, of course, I look around this room and I see so many people I know that are, you know, great examples of this. People of integrity, people who take stands for the Lord. Some at great risk. Some that, you know, have, have been threatened in their careers or that. And, and I know that happens. And so I'm so just encouraged to be a part of this particular body. But there may be some of you tonight that, you know, the Lord's really speaking to. And, and, and you've looked at it and go, you know, I had a chance to take a stand and I backed down. I had a chance to, to really stand up for the word of God, and, and I didn't. And, you know, we understand. We've all been there. We've all gone through it. But tonight, be encouraged and make a recommitment in your life tonight to say, that's who I want to be, God. You help me by your Holy Spirit to be that kind of man or woman tonight. But maybe you're here tonight, and you're, like, listening to this, and you're going, okay, well, this is kind of weird. I've never heard this kind of stuff before. <laughs> and, and maybe tonight you're realizing that's not the kind of person I really am. And do I really know uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? That, that same Holy Spirit that spoke to David. Do I know that God, that three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If that's you tonight, then I pray tonight you'll make that commitment to him and, and you'll receive the salvation that has been paid for by Jesus dying on the cross for you. And, and I just invite you tonight, if that's you and you want to make that commitment, then after Shane uh, finishes the closing song tonight, that you'll come up and then we can pray together for that. But for the rest of you, I just want to pray for you now that God will strengthen and encourage you. So let's bow together. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for all that you teach us, all that you show us. Lord, just so much in, in that one chapter tonight, so much application for each one of us. And I pray for that one here tonight that's, that's saying, well, I blew it in this area. I, I had that chance and I, and I didn't do it. And, and Lord, I just pray that they just come before you in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me and help me as I move on. And, Lord, you will. You'll strengthen them tonight. And I pray for the one who's, who's saying, you know, I, I lost my integrity here.
I've done something I'm really ashamed of. And again, Lord, as they come to you in repentance and forgiveness, you say you're faithful and just to forgive them uh, and, and restore that relationship. Lord, they're already forgiven in terms of their salvation, but restore that relationship with them tonight. So for each one here, Lord, would you just move in each one's life? And for those that have really been standing strong, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them even more. We all need, Lord, to uh, be strengthened by your Holy Spirit each day of our life, Lord. So strengthen us even more. Help us to persevere in the battles. Even though our hands may be weary, we may even be stuck to our sword, Lord. Would you just continue to strengthen us? And, Lord, in any victory that we get, and, Lord, as, as I shared those things, I, I certainly hope no one took that as bragging because it had nothing to do with me. As, as I freely admit, I didn't even want to take a stand in, in a couple instances, Lord, but you, you pushed me into it, and then you gave victory, Lord. It has nothing to do with me. The victory, Lord, belongs to you, and I know that each one here that has seen those victories, it's always praise God. It's praise the Lord. Praise you, Lord, for the victories that you give as we just try to walk with you and allow your Holy Spirit to work inside of us. So thank you, Lord, for that, and we look forward, God, to what you're going to continue to do in each person's here life here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.